speaking with Adam Mastriani. He's a writer and researcher who runs one of the most unique and interesting subsects out there, and it's called Experimental History. His writing explains social phenomena backed by experimental data in a way that is easy to digest, fun to read, and makes you think hard about topics that we tend to overlook. He's also taught improv classes and is quite funny. So, Adam, welcome. Oh, no, you're never supposed to tell someone you're funny before you start talking. Then they're like, all right, all right, funny guy, make me laugh. Oh, uh, don't worry. We, we've got questions about humor, so <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> cool. So first question, are cognitive biases overrated or underrated? Uh, I, I got to say overrated um, because they, 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 they've launched. It was the, the idea that launched a million careers um, that like, oh, we have this model of the human mind that people generally make rational. We, you know, we've got this rational actor model theory. And every time people deviate from that, uh, that's a paper. And uh, at the beginning, I think this is a really fruitful area of, re of research. I think it was a reasonable null hypothesis to have 50 years ago. And now it's not. Um, and so there's a great article uh, about about this. Uh, I think this guy's name is Josh Collins. I'm, I'm sad if I got that wrong, but he wrote this article. It's like we don't have 100 biases. We have the wrong model. And I definitely agree with that, um, that like eventually we will find some structure, some insight that I think reduces that list a lot. And people have tried to do that. And I think they've had uh, limited success. Uh, anyway, there's a long way of saying overrated. Overrated. Okay. You have a post uh, that rejects the idea that ideas are getting harder to find. So I'm actually curious from your experience in academia, is that a widespread belief amongst younger researchers? And do you think it impacts their ambition? Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I don't know any survey data on this, um, but I know both from speaking to younger uh, students who are like trying to come up with ideas for, for, um, for like a, a research project for a social psychology class, or they're applying to graduate school. And I would encounter this often that people would be like, well, but it's kind of all been done. Like, how do I come up with a new thing? And, and uh, I, I didn't quite have this this point of view back then, but now it would be like, what do you mean? What's done? What do you think we know about about this? Like, the pro the problem is you know so little that you think you know everything. Um, and and like we've created th this like little pretend world of psychology for you, where yes, inside that pretend world, it doesn't look like there's many holes left, but in fact, the whole thing is a hole. So, uh, and then I, I had a, a fateful, not fateful, but I ran into a senior member of the psychology department where I did my PhD one day on the street. And I forget what we were talking about, but he was like, yeah, you know, like ideas are getting hard to find. Like it's hard. And I'm like, no, no. Why do you think this? <laughs> um, uh, and so I think it's just this feeling that a lot of people have and just accept without any further, like, like the, the, the feeling itself is evidence of the, uh, like for the outcome. Uh, like it feels like ideas are hard to find. Like I don't know, it's hard for me to come up with ideas. They must be getting harder to find. Do you think that this is mostly driven by academia, like the structures of academia? But because I think about the private sector as well, you know, they're they're they've been responsible for like plenty of breakthroughs. But I mean, I mean, GDP growth, right, is like usually the yeah. uh, metric that people use. They say like, hey, the 1970s, like things slowed down. What the heck happened? Oh, maybe we picked all the low hanging fruit, like. Is this, in your view, is it cultural, institutional? What do you think is causing that? Yeah, there, I mean, I, I think, well, I just said cognitive biases were overrated, but now I'm going to explain this in terms of cognitive bias. It's not so much a cognitive bias as it is like, I think this is how it feels to be a human. Everything ahead of us is like unknown and difficult to think about. Everything behind us is like obvious. And so it constantly feels like we are moving th through time as, as like at the inflection point where things went from being obvious to difficult um but that would be true at any point uh 
And so I, I don't think this is like literally everybody and every time thinks this because there are moments where there's some breakthrough that obviously leads to a bunch of things and people go like, you know, uh, we're now in an exciting time. And so if, if you look back at like the late uh, or mi mid to late 1800s in terms of uh, like geographic exploration of the world, uh, that's a time you can find people saying like, there's a lot going on. You just kind of point yourself in a direction and keep on walking and you can contribute to our knowledge of the world. Uh, and so they can recognize that there are times when things get easier. But but I can imagine, I mean, I've never read this, but I can imagine like once we've kind of painted in all of the corners of the globe on you know our big map, um, we go like, well, now there'll never be anything so easy. But at the same time, we're, we're like developing submarines that can go deeper into the ocean. We, we basically, we, we find these uh, these fertile grounds and then we, we fertilize them. We grow all of our ideas in them. And we assume that we can't find another one again because it's so difficult to imagine what the next one will look like. Um, but that's just the way that it feels to try to develop new ideas. So like, yeah, where, where does it come from? That That's my guess for from a scientific point of view. In the business point of view, I, I don't know. Um, and I wonder if people feel this as much, that they're like, oh, you can't do a startup today because like we've done all the apps. Um, and like, I don't know, there was a period of time when like the coolest thing to do was an app and everybody was trying to figure out like, what app do I make for the iPhone? And now that's not true anymore. Probably now it's like, what do I use uh, ChatGPT to do? Uh, and like, we're in a moment where you can do a bunch of different stuff and like, it's a lot easier. But once that's kind of played out, people might be like, man, well, now now we've finally done all the easy stuff. But there's going to be the next thing that's going to open up uh, that new playground for people to play in. But it's it's difficult to per perceive it before it happens. Now, th this actually ties in with one of your posts that got me like just really, really excited about your Substack um, that I, I kind of like resonated with a lot was the, this idea of like the illusion of moral decline. It's it's actually something that like I've had conversations with friends about before where I'm like, I feel like everyone thinks things are, you know, people are changing a lot more than they actually are. But then you went and you got a ton of data on this and like actually confirmed it, which was super, super fascinating. But my question is for you is like looking forwards. I wonder, sometimes I call like this period of time we're in, it's like, I wonder if in 100, 200, 300 years, they'll call this like the beginning of history or there will be like a BC type date like associated <laughs> with it because literally the amount of data and information and ability to like see people on TV now is completely different than it was um, 50, even 100 years ago. So what, what I'm wondering is, do you think that this trend will continue or do you think people will have a better grasp on what our contemporary world is like in say 20, 30, 40 years? I don't know, because, I mean, there was a similar transformation uh, that took a lot longer, but, but I think it was on a similar scale where, uh, you know, we invented the printing press, and, and now uh, the written word gets a lot cheaper. And this does transform the world, and I'm sure people under living through that transformation thought to themselves, like, wow, what a big difference. But when we look back at history, we go like, well, there weren't mass-produced books, and then over time, there's more and more of them. And, like, it kind of takes a historian to really appreciate how much of a difference that made, like, it's not like the layperson looks back at history and 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 can feel the difference. Um, and so I wonder if we will be subject to the same like lack of empathy by our descendants that they'll look back in time and go like, oh yeah, you you didn't used to be able to like command all that data. You didn't you used to be able to like talk to machines and have them do stuff for you. And yeah, that must have been that felt pretty different. But anyway, like back to talking to my machine. Um, in in the way that that something like. World War II sticks in our mind so much more strongly that we're like, wow, people are like killing each other. And that must have been so different. Um, it seems more difficult to like empathize with uh, with like changes that don't involve, I don't know, bullets hitting skin or things blowing up. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I doubt that people will, will think our times are as interesting as we think them to be now. That, that seems like a pretty stable uh, cycle that happens in history. 
Do you think that they will have a better grasp on our moral compass than we do from people that came before us? That must be, yeah, because uh, we articulate it so much more. Um, so it's a lot harder, right, for us to understand, like, what made sense to the morality of a Roman, because we have fewer sources overall. Those sources all come from people who could read or write, so they're necessarily weird for the time. Um, whereas, you know, if, if you're able to, like, wrap your head and, uh, and arms around Twitter data 100 or 200 years from now, you can get a much better sense of, the diversity of opinions that people had or what they meant by all the different things that they said there it seems like the harder part is making sense of all that noise so like rather than three sources you now have three billion and uh and it'll fall to them to figure out like what was it actually like to be a person back then yeah i don't know how they'll do it they'll probably think it was pretty weird um or, or they probably won't understand what it was really like to be a person um just like i don't think we really understand what it was like to be a person even like 70 years ago yeah, yeah, yeah. Another post I really love is uh, it's called "People Aren't Stupid." I think basically there's a bigger market for like complicated or technical ideas than people think. Like whether it's a movie, a podcast, blog post, like whatever, people can sort of like handle more than people think. Curious if you think that the culture is trending in the direction of accepting this idea, or if you think we're getting worse and people like now have uh, are, are basically saying like, no, everyone is more and more stupid. People are getting dumber. Yeah. Uh, where, where, where do you think this is heading? I'm totally with you that, that that like I think people underestimate people's ability to be interested in stuff that doesn't seem broadly interesting. That I mean, like you can just go through Reddit and see all the communities built around things like I don't know, like stamp collecting and model trains and and, and like fossils or whatever. That there's like whatever is out there. There's somebody who's really deep into it. But mainly, what we see are like oh, all these dumb people are lined up to see the newest CGI Marvel movie. Like where's where's culture gone? Because, like, no one's ever going to tell you that there's, uh, you know, 5,000 people in a really active online community doing something that seems extremely boring. Like, they're never going to talk to you. They're too busy doing their trains or whatever. Like, where, where is this going? So it, it, as part of that um, project on the illusion of moral decline, uh, we ran one study. I don't think it's even it's just sitting around somewhere where we asked people not about morality, but what about like smartness and competence? Um, how smart and competent do you think people are now? What about 10 years ago, 20 years ago? And people do th say that they think people are less smart and competent today than they were 10 years ago and 20 years ago. However, the size of that decline is about a third the size of uh, the decline that people perceive in people's like goodness and kindness and friendliness and honesty. So people think that people are, are becoming worse interpersonally faster than they do, uh, than they think they're becoming worse intellectually. And I think it's because the evidence is much more mixed for the intellectual part that people look out in the world and like, well, you know, kids today can use computers and they couldn't do that uh, a generation ago. Like I didn't have a computer growing up. So like, and, and you can see this in some of the survey results, people will be like, you know, people know more about the world today. They can use more technology, but they have less common sense. Um, they have less street smarts. They don't know how to change a tire anymore. And, and that's why I think they're getting less smart and competent or look, look at these, you know, bozo um, uh, politicians. People are obviously getting stupider. So I do think it's something that people believe, but not as strongly as look how evil people have gotten. Got it. Got it. Got it. Uh, you post your resume on your personal website and I was reading through <laughs> it and, and, probably take that and, and, <laughs> and well, one thing that jumped out to me that, that was, it tracks with all, all of your other writing is that you have some student testimonials and actually quite a few of them say that you're, you're funny as a professor or as a teacher. So yeah. what's the right balance between technical rigor and humor when you're trying to teach someone a complicated topic? 
so w when they say that I'm funny, uh, and and uh, when, whenever I had to write had to write a teaching statement, I try to explain this that like it doesn't mean that I'm like cracking jokes at the front of class or that, that I like put punchlines in my powerpoints and stuff like that. I really think that people say things are funny when it, they they say that because they're having fun, and I think that's an orientation toward the class that like why should a class be boring? Like why shouldn't we be doing like we're here to learn something interesting. This is especially true in the, in the, the classes that I've taught most recently, which are negotiation. Where like like random stuff happens all the time. That like people will come back from their their simulation, so they actually do negotiations with each other, and they'll come back and, and be like, "Yeah, we solved it by like inventing a nonprofit." And they're like, "I just paid them off with my nonprofit." And so I have to be in front of the class and be like, "Okay, guys, we've we've you've played the nonprofit card. You can't do that again. That wasn't what you're supposed to do. Like you can't just become a wizard and be like, I magically solve all the problems. Like the point of the simulation was, was to like stay inside the world of the simulation." Um, and so, I mean, I don't know if that sounds all that funny recounted, uh, as most things uh, don't. But like that is, I think, what uh, what I try to bring as a teacher. So yeah, a lot of people try to do this as like, oh, let me put a cartoon on the screen, and that will you know loosen students up. And I don't really think it's about that. I think it's about an attitude toward uh, like it's fine to have a good time learning this, and like why wouldn't you? And when you have that attitude, I think people naturally like end up doing silly things and laughing at them. Just like you probably like laugh a lot with your friends, even though none of them necessarily have to be all that funny on their own. Uh, like laughter is what naturally happens when people are having a good time with one another. Uh, like you don't have to know a professional comedian in order to laugh. Um, uh, because most of the things you laugh at like probably won't even make sense explained after the fact. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I don't think they actually have to be in, in, uh, in competition with each other, uh, to answer your question. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What are some common misconceptions that people have about humor? So you, you, you have a post that's called like how to get funnier and why you shouldn't. And you're sort of like, you know, discussing this paradox where it's like, you know, wanting to be funny sometimes like goes in the wrong direction. So what's your yeah. advice to someone if they actually want to be funny? Yeah. I, I encountered this a lot teaching improv classes where, where people would come because they're like, I want to be funnier. I want to make people laugh more. And I think the main misconception is that people think that humor is something that you do to people rather than something you do with people. And like, there is a kind of humor that you do to them. And you can see it if, if you go to a stand-up show that like this person has sat and thought about things that, that are intended to make you laugh. And you should sit quietly and listen to them and see if they actually make you laugh. But like, I think that is such a, a, a specific form of humor that most people don't need to have anything like that. Um, that really, if, if you want to get funnier, you should think about having more fun, uh, of thinking humor of something that you create with another person rather than something that you, that you inflict upon them. Um, so like, rather than trying to tell people jokes, trying to notice the things that people say that are already funny and play on those things or, or agree to the realities that people create. I mean, this is the idea behind yes. And, and there's a reason why that's the, you know, the number one rule of improv is like you have more fun when I agree to the reality that you're creating and I add to it and you agree to mine and you add to it as well. Uh, a friend of mine put this well once is, is like the thing about improvisers is that when you shoot them, they die. And uh, meaning that like if you <laughs> mime, like shooting them with a gun, they're like, oh, oh, like and they'll, uh, because like they're making something with you. Um, like the lamest response, not that I would recommend miming shooting someone, especially the, these days, but say with an arrow, uh, miming shooting, like the most boring response is like, what are you doing? Uh, but like it just kills the vibe if you just accept that like we're doing something silly here we're both gonna have fun um and so if someone wants to be funnier i, I guess like die when people shoot you i suppose is the, is the best advice that i could give do you think humor is an innate skill or can people learn to be more funny uh i think you can there's plenty that you can learn in both of these th like in both 
what, what I've called like joking, which is like the canned form of humor and in jamming, which is like the interpersonal form. So like if you take a stand up class, there's stuff that they can teach you of like, uh, you know, you should probably put the funniest word at the end of the sentence. Um, funny things often come in threes. And like there are all kinds of like it's sometimes even funny to break these rules because people tend to get used to that rhythm and then you do something different and that can be funny, too. So there are things like techniques that you can learn. Um, same thing with interpersonally if you get better at doing yes and uh like yeah you can you can become people will find you funnier for doing that um but i don't think they're they're all that well distilled into a list of bullet points uh especially the ones that have more to do with how you relate to people interpersonally i think those are better um experienced than than taught um which is the whole the whole idea of the <laughs> of what keeps improv theaters afloat which is trying to do that exact thing with people yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. You've talked before about your time, I think it was at Oxford um, when you got your master's and trying to explain yeah. to people why you would not recommend it and how hard it is for people <laughs> to understand that. Why is it like, what is it about emotional content that makes it so difficult to really help someone understand how you're feeling about something? Yeah. Um, I think it is that we have this very lossy form of data transmission called language that like I had a very rich and multifaceted uh, experience in this place. Um, and now I have to somehow like compress two years of experience there, which had a lot of variance between them, uh, right? It wasn't like every day was bad. Um, and it wasn't even like most days were bad. Uh, and I did a lot of different stuff. And now I have to figure out a way of like turning that into a couple of sentences that I can transmit to someone else in a way that they can unpack them and uncompress them and uh, understand what it was like to be there. And so it ends up that like, uh, that I have this like very rich experience and I go like, no, oh, it wasn't that good. And on the other side, like they don't have the, the, the key to like unpack the, it wasn't that good into all the ways in which it wasn't that good. And so we try to do this with like, well, I'll give you some representative anecdotes. Um, but even those like you overweight on them. Uh, and so I often had this problem trying to explain to people like, look, you can go to Oxford. It can be a good experience. I think on average for people doing master's degrees, it's not a great experience. But people also have a hard time believing you because they're like, well, but Oxford is a very prestigious institution. Why wouldn't it be good to go there? And so and it's also hard for them to update just on talking to one person. And maybe they shouldn't, but maybe they should also wonder like, well, a bunch of people saying that Oxford is a good institution, like, what do they know? They're just saying what they think other people think. Like, who is the person who actually did the vetting of this institution? And you'll find that, like, there was no person who did any vetting of this institution. Like, nobody, like, I don't even know who, what it would be like. You, like, go undercover as a student and see how much you learn. And so this is a weird thing that always comes up whenever someone's like, oh, yeah, like that school, that's a good school. I'm like, who knows? How do you know? Nobody knows that. Uh, what you mean is that it has a good reputation. Um, which might be useful information, but maybe not for like what experience you will have being there. Yeah. So it's hard, it's hard to do all that in language and, uh, and I don't usually succeed. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's there's some other things like trying to explain the feeling of like, you know, a wedding day or flying for your first time yeah. or some of these things like that, where it's just like quite little, you, you almost tell someone when you're talking to them, like, I can't quite describe it, but you know, you're not, yes. you'll, you'll see yes. for yourself, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. What was, what was your wedding like? It was fun. The food was yeah. Good. Like, it, it was a really big party. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. It sounds cool, dude. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you think that being like a good conversationalist can help you actually become a better researcher? Hmm. 
Yes, in, in that I think one way to get better at uh, a conversation is to get better at picking out like what is interesting about the things that someone is saying. I think that could be a similar skill as to picking, picking out like what is interesting to understand more about. And so often when I'm like trying to have a good conversation with someone who I don't often already know that like it, it's a time when you have to like pay a little extra attention because we don't have a lot of shared experience already. Like I'm just looking for the thing that I'm like, what's that about? Uh, like, why did you do that? Like, what? Like, uh, and so everybody has these weird things about them. And I, I often find that, like, when I'm with someone that it's not that fun to talk to, um, like, I will put out some of the things that I think are kind of weird, and they'll just like blow right by them. Then I'm like, here's a Christmas gift, and they're like, no thanks. Uh, and I'm like, what? Well, here's a five dollar bill. Like, nah. Uh, and so I'll be like, yeah, you know, I do this weird thing. I write a blog on the internet, and they'll go, oh, that's crazy. Like, um, yeah, have you seen the Queen's Gambit? It's a show on Netflix. I mean, what? What do you? <laughs> Why? Like, I just told you a weird thing about you don't want to know any any more about that. You rather like we both tell each other like what media we've watched on screens recently. And so I think I think that same kind of person who couldn't see the interesting thing about someone like probably can't see like what is interesting about the things that we don't understand in the in the world. I think it's a similar orientation that, that you bring. I don't know if getting better at having conversations would necessarily unlock that same skill, but I imagine that they that they go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Yeah, this this brings up actually the next question I had here, which is you've you've talked about before how like early on when you started working with Dan Gilbert uh, doing your PhD, you would sort of like kick ideas around, and you said some of your first ones were like you know sort of bad ideas, like uh, yeah. do we undervalue things that are background items in our life, like maybe office chairs or you know just like something that you, you're trying to think yeah. about. But here, here's my question to you then: is like what actually makes a good idea for investigating in psychology research? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, this is one of the things that like, I wish I could distill it. Um, but this is what I feel like I got out of spending five years in a room with him. Um, and so, uh, and so I, I could tell you that, that like, well, there's a certain feeling that I get when I encounter an idea that I think has legs and it feels a little bit like, like the bottom drops out of my stomach and, and, uh, and I go like, ah, that, that one. Um, and all the ways in which I think I could describe it are going to sound a little trite, like, oh, well, you know, it's the kind of thing that you keep coming back to, um, that you stick with. It's the sort of thing that you, you know, the New York times would want to write about. And, and it's like, yeah, yeah. Um, but, and, and especially now as, as I'm thinking more and more about what it would take to make psychology, a paradigmatic science, I realize that like the problem here is that without a, a functioning paradigm, without a, a useful way of organizing the knowledge that we have and and um, predicting and assimilating the knowledge that we don't have, like every good idea basically has to be born from scratch and requires this almost mystical approach to life of where you're, you're always sticking your, your your nose in a bunch of different ideas and, and like inhaling deeply and trying to see like, ah, does this one have that, that, that indescribable something? Um, I think if we uh, if we had the unfilled globe uh, or, or the periodic table with, with uh, things missing from it, this wouldn't be a question at all. It would be like, well, we've got a periodic table with things missing from it. The good idea is to figure out how to how to uh, plug those holes. Um, but we're not there yet. And so everything. And so if you want to have good ideas, you, I don't know, you kind of have to like either be weird to begin with, um, which I think is, is helpful. But like if you don't already think like most people, uh, which I didn't have. And so instead, I had to like sit in a room with a guy for five years who who knew what the good ideas were and like see which ones he thought were good and like sort of start reflecting his expertise, but also developing my, my own along the same way. Cause obviously we weren't the same person, which is, yeah, I, w I wish I could answer your question, but unfortunately it would take five years. Yeah. 
What about recognizing good ideas? Like, do you feel like you have a good intuition if you were working with someone who wanted to get into your field, they're young, now they're sitting in a room with you, uh, you know, kicking around their ideas that maybe some are good, some are bad. Do you feel like you have a good intuition on how to pick the good ones and bad ones? And is that easier to articulate than how to come up with them? I, I think it's a very similar process because like the coming up with ideas, I think isn't that like, I think things occur to you all the time. Uh, and you can like come to recognize those more and at least like, I don't know, write, write them down. But really, uh, the skill comes at the second part where you winnow them down. But like you could list 100 ideas of which like maybe one is worth spending even 10 more minutes thinking about. And maybe one in 100 is worth spending another hour thinking about. And one in a thousand is worth spending another like day thinking about. Um, and so th- it is a problem, I think, of selection rather than generation. Um, and so, uh, yeah, when, when students come, I think part of the way that students learn to do this is like you see ideas out there already that are good and you try to understand like what makes them good. Um, the problem is in our field, like while this is happening, people are being trained in all the norms that like, oh, this idea is good because it like satisfies all these norms. And, and like we uh, like there was this theory that said this thing, but now you can do this other thing with this theory. And I think this is like warping people's sense of what's actually interesting. And it is instead giving people a sense of like what would succeed in the rules um, as a proxy for what's actually worth doing. And so there's, I think a lot of research that comes out is like, well, th- this was, this was like a clever idea in the sense that like it made the gatekeepers raise the gate for this idea. But that is very loosely, if at all correlated with an idea that's actually good. And so I've sat in talks where, where people have turned to me and been like, oh, it's a clever idea by which they meant it was so cool how, how they like arranged the words on the page so that they, the such that they got into the journal called psychological science. Uh, like not like, oh, this idea really makes me think differently about the world. Yeah. Yeah. So is, is that your heuristic? Like ideas that make me think or like change your perspective or view on the world? Like, I, I guess out of all the ideas and research that's been done before, if you were to rank like, oh, like these studies really affected me. Are, is there a common thread or like a way that you could describe how you would put them in that stack rank? There's there's some. So like uh, there are ideas that I feel like have given me uh, a different perspective on life, even if it's not like, uh, you know, I, I apply them in like a news you can use kind of way. But the reason I went and worked with Dan Gilbert in the first place was because I read his book um, called Stumbling on Happiness that was about like, here's a bunch of evidence that people are pretty bad at predicting what's going to make them happy. Um, and I mean, he'll tell you at the beginning of that book, like that book isn't a how-to book, um, but it, it does dispel, I think, some pretty reasonable null hypothesis, hypotheses, which is just like, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, pretty, the way I think that I'm going to feel is going to be the way that I feel. Um, like, no, often it, it won't be as extreme as I think that it will. Like the bad feelings won't last as long as I think they do. They do. Neither will the euphoria. And, and really, I'm probably going to return to being about as happy as I am now. That brought me a lot of peace. Um, and like, is that true in every single situation for every single person? Like, no, but it's true on average. And people do this every day. They, you know, they, they think that marrying this person will make them happy or taking this job or leaving this job or leaving this person will make them happy. Um, and like, often they're wrong about those things. Um, now, it, it, that's not a set of instructions, but that is the kind of idea that, I don't know, my life, I feel like, has been enriched for knowing it. Um, and so I'm glad he spent the time <laughs> figuring it out. Uh yeah, so so there, there's that kind of thing, but a lot of things can evoke that kind of feeling falsely, I think, and this is where a lot of research succeeds where it shouldn't. That that it's like, oh, we got people, we put people in this situation, and look what they did. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's easy it's easy to to fake, and I think you you really need to cultivate this idea of like what is true insight and what isn't, because um, a lot of things look like insight that aren't. So w- one of your um, 
maybe most popular post, I don't know, is, is your critique of peer review. I'm curious, like when you think about reform for peer review, do you think we'd be better off just starting with like a completely new method for publishing studies and thinking about which studies are useful? Or do you think that there's like small tweaks we could make to peer review to make it much better? We, we might be better off starting from the beginning, but, um, but I'd like to fight the premise of the question, if I may, which is, yeah, that, uh, uh, which is that, that I don't think actually the right way to think about this is like, which system should we have? Um, because uh, I think, A, it would be pretty difficult to figure that out, and B, there's no such thing as a system that's optimized for everything. Um, and this is really what I've been pushing since that piece came out, is uh, I don't really want to try to reform this system. I mean, I think there's probably some de deadweight loss in this system, no doubt, that we could like move on to the efficient frontier, but I don't think there's actually a lot to be gained in trying to do that. I'd rather uh, have many different systems that are not even trying to be on that same frontier. Uh, that are trying to do, do, do different things. Um, because I heard from people who are like, I like this system, it works for me. And so I'm like, great, I don't, I don't wanna burn down the thing that you like, I wanna build the thing that doesn't serve the people who aren't you. Uh, the build the thing that serves the people who, who you, whatever, you know what I mean. Um, that like, uh, like clearly this, this system is optimized for a certain kind of research. And, and I think one way to describe it is doing normal science in like the, the, the Thomas Kuhnian sense of, of like, you know, if, if we all kind of know what there is to be done and we're all just sort of iterating on the ideas that we already know, there's there's holes to be plugged in. Um, it makes sense to do that kind of thing more systematically and have a bunch of people like looking at it and going like, oh, do I like this or whatever? Good stuff can come out of that. Um, but there's so many other kinds of research that you want people to do that like can't live in that system, even if you tweaked it. And so I'd rather that there's just some other thing. So I try not to think in terms of like, what should the emperor of science do? Uh, and like, there should be no emperor of science. We should have like many, many mini bosses and not one big boss, which is what kind of what we're all under right now. Yeah, so I, so I want more indifferent rather rather than just uh, how do we change this one thing that we all do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, makes, that, that makes a ton of sense and it's really clarifying. Now, I've, I've seen that, like this idea thrown around in some articles by you, but I, I couldn't find a ton on it. Maybe I'm just missing it, but have you talked about this thing called Science House before? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what that is? I, I saw, I've seen it like previewed and I haven't seen the like yes. super in-depth article on it though. Yeah. So, uh, so science house is, is, uh, trying to do like, what's the minimum viable product for, um, for a research institution. Uh, and, um, so rather than like, how can we reform academia, which there are people who want to do that and I wish them Godspeed and don't forget to step over the skeletons of all the people who've tried to do this before you and failed, but whatever, like if that's what you want to do, do it. Um, what if we were to go in a completely di different direction and like, rather than trying to make everybody do something else, carve out just a little corner of the world where people are doing something else from the beginning. And so I think the minimum viable product of a alternative research institution is literally a house. And so the plan would be you buy a house, you fill the house with like four students. There's a mentor who, uh, who trains those students and you go in a different direction. So like you don't publish your papers, it, you don't publish your work in like journals, you publish it on the internet. Like if I had one of these right now, we would be working on uh, what can, what is a, a paradigmatic version of psychology. Um, and we'd probably be reading a lot about cybernetics uh, is what we would be doing. 
Uh, and like, this is work that like doesn't live well in the like academic uh, ecosystem that we have right now. Like it requires a strange approach. Um, and I think there are versions of this in every field or discipline that like, oh, this doesn't really work in academia because it's too interdisciplinary. It doesn't have a place to, to live or people uh, who will champion it. Or like, this doesn't really work because it's too speculative or it's gonna take 10 years to, to pay off. And like, that's not the time course that people's careers are built on. Uh, or like, this doesn't work because like people think the idea is simply too ridiculous. Um, and so if you can do one of these, maybe you can make an archipelago of them that like there's a bunch of different small research institutions all going in really different directions, some of which will inevitably fail. But the whole idea is uh, like one success outweighs all of those failures because like we use the success and the failure doesn't really matter at all. So that, that's the idea behind uh, behind Science House. Um, and the things that, that, it, that it's optimized. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, are you actually pursuing this? Like, do you have concrete plans to start yeah, Science yeah, yeah. House? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, what, what I don't have is the money to, to buy the house, but I do talk to a lot of people about doing it. So what I've been doing so far is like, okay, what are the baby steps you can take toward Science House? And so in the post where I was talking about this, or maybe a different one, it doesn't matter. Um, I was like, look, I want there to be a more diverse ecosystem of people pursuing and communicating scientific ideas. Like, what can I do to make that happen? Uh, like, one is uh, I can have a discord for people who are interested in doing this kind of thing. And so now I have a a discord of like 130 people or something who are interested in doing science independently. Um, another thing I can do is like, how can I figure out how to spend some time with, uh, with like a small group of these folks who are doing this kind of work outside of uh, institutions. And so with some friends and I, and, uh, and a slightly larger group of people get together um, uh, every year trying to do that and that exact thing. Like, can we have a sort of science house for a week? Uh, and now the next question is like, okay, can we do, can we have a science house for a couple months or can we have, a, and eventually can we work up to a permanent science house? And so like, if there's anyone out there who has $15 million who wants to endow this in perpetuity, that's all it would take, which is by the way, the, how much Harvard spends on phone lines every year. So for what Harvard spends on calling people or postage, actually postage, uh, I think phone lines are, are another like 14 million or something, just postage, uh, in, instead of Harvard mailing uh, out brochures, you could endow a scientific institution in perpetuity, like that's it. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm waiting for someone to come along who thinks that's a cool thing to do. Um, or, you know, eventually I'll build it brick by brick as, as I can. Yeah. 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 One, one question I think about a lot whenever you're trying to like recruit academic people interested in like academic ideas or honestly a business or like any sort of like place that you're trying to attract talent is kind of this idea of prestige. How do you think about the concept of prestige in somewhere like Science House? Do you view that as an obstacle if someone is like, well, I don't know, I could go be a professor at Harvard or I have like all of these, you know, as you said earlier, like all of these institutions where everyone says that they're really great and that my career will be like yeah. really awesome. And like, this is where you go to make the breakthroughs. Like, do you view that as an obstacle or have you found a lot of people that are like really interested in some of these alternative paths? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a ton of people who are interested in doing this other thing. I think like that is what who I want to select for. If there's a the kind of person who would feel conflicted about coming to Science House versus going to Harvard, I don't want them in Science House. Like they've missed the point. Yeah. Uh, yeah like yeah. the whole point, right. like Harvard is doing a great job being Harvard. There are plenty of places out there that will burnish your CV. Um, this isn't one of them. This is a place that like might collapse. Uh, uh, I do actually think that like some of these would succeed in such a way that like they would become prestigious even without seeking it. And that is, I think the point at which they will probably have run their course. Um, and we should like wind that down and like distribute that money among others, uh, other science houses. A lot of people, when I talk to about this idea, they're like, how do you know you won't just become like academia again? And I'm like, well, if you believe already that we're going to be successful, like, why aren't we already doing this? And then we can a hundred <laughs> years from now, if it's like, Oh no, we've become Harvard. 
like I guess we could change ta- tactics. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if the most feared outcome is is becoming the most prestigious institution in the world, I go like, well, maybe we should start start doing that, and then and then deal deal with the prestige as it comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you that that actually brings up a good question too? How do you think about identifying talent? Like, if if someone comes up to you and says they wanna they wanna join Science House, clearly someone that's not looking to chase prestige and is you know maybe just really cares about science uh, would be one. But like, what? How do you think about this? Yeah. Um, one thing you do is, is look at like, what has this person done already with what they have? Um, and like, even expecting that to be like really crappy, um, that I don't know if you're a student and you're like, I want to do projects independently. Well, like, what have you done so far? Cause, uh, you have to realize that no one was stopping you from doing this except yourself. Um, they're like, there are silly little things you could do. Uh, there are things you could write. And if you haven't been doing that so far, like, well, why not? Um, and are you waiting for someone to tell you that you're allowed to do it? Which I would point them to like, I actually wrote a post where I'm like, you're allowed to do this. Um, and like, obviously not that everyone read that post, but like no one should have to give you the permission to, to do this. And so I don't think Science House is actually good for a person like that who's waiting for some kind of institutional affirmation. I, I want to get the person who doesn't need that institutional affirmation, what they're really looking for. They're like, I already kind of know that I want that I want to do this. And I've shown you that by uh, or shown myself that by doing it and liking it. What I want is to be around other people who are doing it. I want like some guidance um, or like, you know, I work during the day. Does Radio Shack still exist? I don't know why I assume this person was working at Radio Shack during the day, but whatever. They're delivering pizza during the day and they're like, it'd be really nice if I didn't have to deliver pizza uh, and then like only grow my, you know, uh, life saving mushrooms at night. And I'd be like, great. I can like if you join this house, like you won't have to deliver the pizza anymore. Um, you know, for the next four years, like you just do the mushroom thing. Um, uh, that's part of how I think about identifying talent. Interesting. So it's like already a self-starter has some background experience, like showing that they're actually trying to get something done, but they maybe have restrictions in their life, financial or, or otherwise. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because I think there's, there's a real dearth of people like this online. I, like, I think there's, there's plenty of them, but the, the lack I think is like compared to how many there could be. Um, there are plenty of people who, who are like, you know, at night when the kids go to bed, I like write my novel or, you know, I write my songs or, uh, or I whittle my model trains. All that I think is beautiful and good. I want there to be that kind of person who's like, yeah, at, at night after the kids go to bed, I like, I do my like self-experimentation thing or I run my study on, on Reddit. Um, like all of those things I think are just as interesting, if not more so. Um, but we're still building a culture of it. There are some, some people who do this, um, but nowhere near as many as, as I think there, there could be or should be. Uh, so I'd be looking for that kind of person. Yeah. 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 You know, what, what, one thing that you have on a lot of your posts is a lot of your titles are pretty eye catching. So one is like, <laughs> you know, you should not open a door and see someone pooping. Like, and this yeah. post is actually about like why design is bad in our world. So it, yeah. they're, they're pretty catchy, you know, journalists, like if you, and I'm sure you know this, like if you, if you publish, um, in a larger publication, like a lot of times you don't actually get to choose your, your title. What's your strategy for choosing a good title post and how important do you think it is for the author to be able to have ownership over that? I think it's important. It's been one of the most frustrating things as I, uh, I've written for like the New York times and the Atlantic before in part, because I wanted the experience of like, I don't have an editor when I'm writing for my blog. Like what does an editor do? Um, like, could I learn something from working with them? Um, and I've, I've met some good ones and I've had some good experiences, but the most frustrating part is like, they're going to AB test the, the, the title and they're going to pick something that's like annoying, but got more clicks. And that's going to be the way that people see the entire piece. And most of like the hate mail that you're going to, that you're going to get is from people who like didn't like the title. Uh, and so for me, like, yeah, the title is really important. And it's also a signal to myself that I know 
that like I've baked the piece enough um, that like if I can't give my piece a funny title, then I haven't thought about it enough. And so sometimes I see like blog posts that, that are just like on blank or like meditations on this. Uh, and I'm like, it's possible to write a really good uh, blog post or essay or whatever that has that title. But more often than not, it means like you haven't really figured out what it is you're going to say, because the only way you could think to title this is like the subject of this blog post is this noun. Um, like, I want to get to the point where, like, I have something to say about this. And uh, and like often it often it's specific and it's true and, and experience. And those things tend to make something funny. So it's not like I sit down and I'm like, all right, I got to figure out a funny name for this. Uh, it's more that, that I'm like, what is the distilled version of this? Which is if it's it, like if it's specific and interesting enough, I think it's naturally going to be kind of weird. Um, like it shouldn't be a thing that other people could have written. It should be specific to this. Got it. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Okay, so you were an actor in a movie called Love, Weddings, <laughs> yeah. and Other Disasters, uh, directed yes. by Dennis Dugan. And yeah. notably, it received a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yep. You, I, I, I recommend folks like go you know, just search this on Adam's subset because it's, it's, it's pretty funny, some of the experiences that you mentioned. W one thing that sort of caught my eye, though, was you talk about how there were some actors on there that you got to meet. And you sort of talk about the sense that like, actually the everyday actor is not, you know, like Brad Pitt living in a, you know, $50 million mansion. They're like upper middle class or, you know, they're just sort of getting by with like a job. And this reminded me of actually a movie that I really like. Uh, have you seen Birdman with Michael Keaton? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it, it's, it's basically about like a washed up actor, but in like my view, I always view it as sort of like uh, a broader metaphor for just life in general. It's sort of like the, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of like, you know, fleeting nature of becoming obsolete in whatever field that you're in, you're like sort of always battling against this. I'm wondering as a writer, do you feel this? Oh, like, uh, like always having the danger of becoming a has-been writer. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, it's funny the way you put it. It's like, do you know something that I don't know? Have you seen into the future? Um, so like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a thing that I worry about in, in that, like, if you get successful doing something, um, then you can like overfit on like, oh, I should just keep doing that. Um, you can think a lot more about like, yeah, what is, what does the audience want from me? And, um, and I just really try not to do that. Uh, like it's impossible for me anyway, to not think about it at all. Um, but this is why I like continue to like try to be stupid. Um, that like, if I ever optimize for, um, what it, whatever it is I do, um, I will be doing it wrong. And so, um, yeah, that I see like how people's brains get melted when they like become a public intellectual and start, they have to engage with like the worst parts of the public or the people who yell at them the most. Um, and so like, I don't want to be that I'm actually pretty happy, like about where I am. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't have any more thoughts, <laughs> thoughts about like how to avoid it other than just like, I got to keep being true to myself. Um, and yeah, yeah. whenever there's something that feels a little embarrassing or silly, like I should probably do that. Yeah. 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 I guess, I, I guess sort of the, the idea popped into my head because I was thinking about how, you know, if you're an actor, you do a movie and then you do another movie and like, you just sort of keep doing movies, but all of these fight for people's attention each and every time. And so it's like every single one you put out, it's like, it could be a big hit. It could be a dud. You don't really know. But then at some point you could just like fade out. And uh, it seems to me like there's actually some parallels to sort of like writing, right? Luckily yeah. you have a lot more control over it because you are, you know, the sole author. You're not, you're not going to kind of get like cast in something that you didn't really want to be in. And there's some yeah. differences there, but just sort of the, 
the game of fighting for people's attention, you know, week after week after week. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And and something that's been helpful with this is realizing that, like, even if I wanted to optimize for, like, I only want to put out things that go viral, I don't know how to do it. I've tried to do that before, and I think I've written some pieces that suffered for this. And the pieces that became most successful, I had no idea that they were going to be the ones. And so, and so like, the success that I've had have, has, so far has come from just doing the thing that I was most interested in at the time with, like, the resources that I, that I had to do it. Um, and I should just keep doing that rather than try to game the system. So, like, that, that peer review post, which I think is, is my most popular, when I was about to publish it, I was like, oh, man, this is kind of inside baseball. Like, I don't know if anyone really wants to read this. And then it goes on to be the, the thing that people read the most. Like, I had no idea. And so, like, why, like, why do I think I'm going to have any idea on the next one? It really just comes down to, like, is this a thing that I'm excited to write? Uh, and, like, am I, like, excited to show it to other people? Then if the answer is yes, then, like, I keep going. But I throw a ton away that doesn't hit that. Then I'm like, ah, like, I'm writing this because, like, I don't know. I'm just mad about something. Or I'm writing this because, like, I think it's the kind of piece that would do well. Or I'm writing this because I had, a, like, one thought, but I don't really have any more thoughts about it. And I just ditch those. And so, so long as like I continue to have fun doing it, I, I think that the same thing will keep happening. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe may I'll fade away and I'll, I'll have to go back to to being in uh, in movie in terrible movies that get three percent of Rotten Tomatoes. It'll be fine. <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> Well, well, actually, actually, there's another point that you bring up. I mean, the whole post actually has like a lot of interesting ideas, but one of them was that you you pointed out at the end that like there's a lot of people who really like the movie, and yeah, it's yeah. sort of, it's sort of like this weird uh, dichotomy where you know you, you do find some people that are like, wait, what the heck? Why is everyone being so so critical on this? Like, it's sweet, it's fun, it does you know it does what it's, it claims to do. It's a it's a it's a rom com. So I'm, I'm curious, like. Does did that experience at all sort of like influence your views on the relationship between just like art and its audience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yes. Uh, I mean, it really feeds, feeds into this idea of like trying to like make a more diverse ecosystem of, of people doing science. That like if we take seriously the variation between humans and take seriously the idea that like there's there's a lot there's a lot to be gained there that like there's no person like this person they can do something that literally no one else can do we want them to be able to express their talents um the best that they can so that we can all benefit from them and like they might look ridiculous to me or their ideas may seem silly uh but like as long as they aren't hurt, hurting anybody i would like them to be able to see those ideas through to the end and uh there's a a restaurant near me that i think is terrible but it's always full and like, hey, that's fine. Like, whatever. I'm never going there. Uh, but people really seem to like it. And like, God bless them. And God bless the people who run that restaurant. That, uh, that like, I want to live in a world like that, where those people have the restaurant that they like. And, and I want to be the kind of person, like, I'm not trying to cater to everybody. Uh, like, I, too, am trying to find the people who resonate with the things that I put out there. And so rather than trying to optimize for everybody, like, I'm trying to optimize for like what I think is true and exciting and trusting that there's enough people out there. If I do a, a good enough job who will like be interested in it and support it. And I think about this sometimes like some people on Substack like think a lot about their metrics and like, Oh man, how many subscribers do I have? And, and what they will often find is every time you send out a newsletter, you lose subscribers um, at least somewhat like on net, you might gain them. But like every email you send someone is a reminder to them to unsubscribe from you. And, uh, and so you can, you can see like these little dips, uh, in, in your, um, in your graph over time. But I realized that like, I want those people to go away if they don't want to wish to receive an email from me. Like we've both benefited from them unsubscribing. What I really want to do is prune my audience, not just grow it. Like I want to be reaching the people who want to hear from me. 
And so rather than just like, oh, I want that number to go up, it's like, no, I want this number to be different in a way that the number cannot capture, which is just like, to what extent am I going to the people who want to hear from me and finding those people? Because I don't know, there's a lot of different kinds of people out there. So there's a long answer to your question, but uh, but yes, it did actually make me have that that, that experience. Yeah, 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 that's that's really interesting. So you have another post on this idea of sort of the pop culture oligopoly, and you sort of talk about how you know there's a, a little bit more like homogeneity in like all of the movies and books and video games and everything else that's being released. I think a lot of people know this is like, oh my gosh, not another sequel or whatever. I'm curious, where do you find your movies, books, or video games? Like, do you have a method for finding some of the like under the radar good stuff? Oh yeah, no, I, I don't think like I'm um, I'm an exceptionally good connoisseur of any of these things, other than uh, like weighting heavily on like the strongest recommendations that people give me. So, so some people that, that I'm close with know this about me, but like I think people recommend things too easily. That basically people are just like, I had this experience recently. Like, why don't you? Um, and I've explained to some people that, that I'm like, I want you to give me tiers of recommendations here. One is just like, it, look, if you're looking for something to, to do, like this is a good use of your time versus I have a good sense of how you're using your time. And I think you should use it uh, like otherwise to do like listen or watch this thing. And I have things that I feel that way about and people who have like given me recommendations like that, that have been good. So I pay attention to a lot of that and I read a lot of stuff. So I've, I've probably subscribed to like. I know a lot of Substacks, and I don't read them all thoroughly, but I pick up a lot of like tidbits from each of them that lead me down different pathways. And a lot of the research that I do leads me down like into things that I read. So those are the two main sources. But yeah, I, I wish I was better about like, I know how to find good music. Like I really don't other than just having some friends who I think have interesting music tastes and like uh, just mooching off of them. Yeah. Yeah. And then just being a victim of the oligopoly. Uh, um, yes. Yeah. You know, it, it, no, it's funny. Uh, I, I think Tyler Cowen has this, has this, uh, this quote where he says like, he doesn't like to give people books and the, the, the reason is cause they might read them. And he's like, you know, just cause I read this book, you know, it's like out of all of the possible like list of books that they could read, because I just happened to read it last week and kind of enjoyed it. it does not mean that right now in this person's life, like it is the top book they should yeah. be reading, but if I give it to them, they might do it, which, which could be bad. So kind of, yeah. kind of yeah. <laughs> the same, the same thing especially a book where it's it feels like such a commitment where whereas like oh it's a tv show like i can turn it off after 15 minutes and, and and it's all good but a book like i feel a little bit lame if i if i like stop reading the book that you recommended after fit like i feel kind of like a philistine uh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i mean it's, it's 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 like it's just time suck it's it's a lot yeah one more post basically the premise is you talk about your most played songs on Spotify and like a lot of them, you said in some way they feel a little bit wrong. So they have like maybe a little bit of a blemish on them. The funny metaphor you use is like a hot person with a mole on their nose or like a weird laugh or something, right? There's, there's something that's like yeah. not quite right about some of your favorite songs. Do you think that this rule applies beyond music too? Do you see it in literature, film, paintings, anything else that you enjoy? Yeah. The reason I wrote that post was, uh, this is all supposed to be background, um, research for a bigger post that I was intending to write about how like the uncanny Valley is like actually a pretty fun place to hang out where that was, that was about this phenomenon that like the things that seem the most interesting are the things that have something a little bit wrong with them. I think for the same reason that like nobody pays attention to uh, the completely unobjectionable paintings on the wall of the hotel room. Um, Cause like they are, uh, they're designed to like uh, to optimize for appreciation from everyone, which means like they are of, of interest to no one. And like the reason that uh, that post never got written was because like 
I don't know. That's about as far as the argument goes. Like, isn't it cool, guys? Like, some of the most interesting things have something wrong with them. Um, and that's the post. But like, yes, I do think it is. It is something that that uh, that is true more broadly, and something that I feel about the way, that, like, even what I write. That that I'm like, there are ways in in which like I could make this feel. I, I don't know. There are, sometimes when I'm making a, like a prose decision that I go like, I realize this is a little bit dissonant, but I kind of want it to be that way. Like, I know I'm going to lose someone a little bit here, but I'm not trying to keep everybody in. Uh, like, I'm trying to express this way in the way that's most reflective of the thing that's inside me. And so, so like, it's not for everybody. And there's a joy in not being for everybody. I, I think it was at an improv show once where, like, someone got up and walked out, and the guy on stage was just like, man, it's not for everybody. And, and like, what a, what a powerful <laughs> yeah, yeah. sentiment yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to be. But, like, yeah, we're... Uh, we're here to do a thing. If you like that thing, stay. If you don't like that thing, go. Uh, like both are totally fine. Nobody has to be here watching this improv show. No one has to be here reading this thing. I want to make a thing that, that like, I do think it's worth your time. Um, but if you read it and disagree, like don't come back. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that. Yeah. 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 You, you mentioned that you had like this post sort of brewing and it had like just one good point and then not, not enough else to really like make a full post. What's your bar for actually publishing something? I saw, I think before, like David Foster Wallace on like one of his like grading scales or whatever, he had like, you know, A is this, B is this, whatever. Then he had like F is like obvious was kind of like the, the joke. It's like, hey, this is like, <laughs> it's too, it's too obvious, like boring. Um, do you have anything like that strikes you? Like when is a post ready? Like what, is, how would you describe when it, uh, a post that's like publishable on your subsec? Yeah. It, it's probably like surprised me as I was writing it that if there's ever a post that like I know from the beginning what it's going to be, it usually fizzles out because I'm not interested in, in like discovering more about this. And so why would anyone else be? And I think this is pretty universally true in the stuff that I've published that like this didn't go in the direction that I thought it was going to when I started out because I did more research and found like, oh, there's actually this really interesting side story here. Or I find some evidence that, like, actually the thing that I was going to argue about, like, isn't really the case. There's this other thing, and that's more interesting. Or I kind of run out that, that I'm like, oh, this is – I have a few sections here, but um, but it feels like an argument that someone else has made. Like, I really am trying to inhabit a corner that I don't think anybody else is in. Um, that, like, you can read the New York Times if you want. If you want a bunch of lukewarm takes, like, they will provide them for you. They're there every day. <laughs> And, like, if you want, like, just a rundown of, like, here's the most interesting things today. There's other people who do that really well. Um, like, if you just want, like, over and over again, like, controversial takes. Like, there's people who do that, too. I don't know what it, exactly it, it is I'm doing, but I'm in some other place. And I want to, like, be in that place and be as, as good as I can at being in that place. So part of that is also, like, having an information diet that's different. That, like, uh, and which also means my output is different. That, like... I don't really write about AI because enough other people are doing that. Um, and I don't really read much about it because like enough other, I mean, I read some about it to like, but I also don't really read the news for the same reason, but like nobody wants to read what I have to say about like Israel and Palestine. Yeah. Yeah. What do you read? What's your, what's your, you know, quote information diet. Uh, I read a ton. So I read a ton of blogs um, that are, that are fairly eclectic. I, one of my, uh, favorite source of information is is the browser, which is just um, oh, I, I love the browser. Yeah, yes, they're so good. Yes, they're 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 fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. I save pretty much every article that they send out, and like those articles lead me to other articles. And then honestly, a lot of what I read is like the stuff that comes up in my research that uh, that goes down like weird rabbit holes, and um, and so it'll be like, oh, I actually really need to understand a lot more about the like the Royal Society. So now I have to read a book about the Royal Society. 
Yeah, those are the main things. So like, I use uh, my pocket app on my phone a lot. Like that's my default. Like other people default to like Twitter or whatever when they're uh, when they have time to kill. Like I default to reading that weird collection of things. Oh, interesting, interesting. You have this idea of well-defined versus poorly defined problems. Uh, well-defined problem would be like, you know, get the perfect score on the SAT. Poorly defined would be like, go raise a family of four <laughs> and like do it well. Yes. Like, what, what, what does yeah. that mean, right? Like, like what, yeah. you, you don't even like know it's, it's, it's exactly what you say it is. It's a poorly defined problem. So like a lot of people say that there's like some aspects of, of intelligence that are somewhat innate. Do you think that poorly defined problems are there's an innate skill or do you think that there is like some way that people can go about learning to get better at solving those? I, I wish, I wish I knew other than like looking at the people who seem to live good lives and like trying to do what they do. But I think this comes down to the fact that like we say the word intelligence and we think we, we all feel like we know what we're talking about and we're like, well, but there's tests of it. And like the tests correlate with important life outcomes. And so like, we kind of know what this is. I think we like we don't have a good sense of what this is. We we have uh, we have a word and we have a, an illusion of explanatory depth. And I think in what I hope to be like the coming new paradigm of psychology, I think the, what, the way we think about intelligence is totally different. Just like the way we think about motion today is totally different from the way that Aristotle thought about motion. Uh, like in a way that like we're using the same word, but it's it's not the same thing. I think we are going to come to mean something else. I think what we mean right now is very impoverished, which is just basically like, yeah, can you take the SAT? Like, can you play chess? Um, which are like, they are meaningful things. Like, it's not, it's not that they're like stupid, but they don't even come close to capturing like the, the, the very weird array of, of things that humans are capable of doing. And, and yeah, what, like, what is that array and how do you make people better at it? Like, I don't know yet. Um, but, but I do believe that we are going to come to know more and, and look back on the, on the things that we think now and go like, man, there was a time when people thought you could like download an app that makes you like memorize digits and like you could train your brain and then you would like be better at life. Uh, like, wow, we feel bad for those people. Do you think that the education system should do more to like teach people how to solve poorly defined problems? Uh, cause right now it's almost zero and which I, this is maybe hard, yeah, right? Man. Cause like how, how, how would you measure yeah. it? But but yeah. like so much of life is that right it's just like how do i be liked by my peers how do i like make friends um and it sort yeah. it teaches you that like implicitly but definitely not like you're not getting graded on this and i don't know yeah i would i would love i would love for it to do that if if i had any confidence that it would succeed in doing that then like at least when it comes to teaching uh like the like how uh elements work like I feel pretty solid that like, yeah, we know there's protons and like, I can tell you about the protons. And if you got three protons, it's a lithium. Um, and like any person that you put in any high school classroom, who's like taken two classes can do that when it comes to like, yeah, how do you live a good life? Man, who's qualified to do that? Uh, <laughs> and like, if, if they're able to do that, they might have ambitions greater than, uh, you know, teaching 15 people how to do it at, at a time. Like you also have to find someone who's pretty selfless. Um, and, and so I think some teachers are naturally this this way. Uh, it, we're just not very good at selecting um, because, again, like the whole point of it is it's not a very legible dimension of humanity. And so it's not like we can administer to them uh, like their aptitude test uh, of solving these poorly defined problems. But, yeah, if like if we figured it out more, um, I'd, I'd love for us if, if, to teach it. Yeah. In the existing paradigm, though, you know what we like, quote, call intelligence, you, you talk about how it's not correlated with happiness. And like, it's not super clear and obvious, like why that might be. 
What do you think this measure of intelligence in this new paradigm would be? Or is this something that's indescribable? You've got yeah. me like, thinking about it now. I'm like, what, what, what would it be? Yeah. I mean, here's an attempt, uh, which I think will be full of holes by design. But if you, if you think of the mind as basically a stack of control systems, so like there's all these parameters that the human mind is trying to keep with, within uh, well-defined boundaries from the basic stuff of like, um, uh, you know, we're hungry, we need food. Um, and like we, there's too much carbon dioxide in the lungs, like we need air to more abstract things. Like we feel lonely, like we need more human contact. It, like, and I can go, there's a much longer story, but like, I think this is a, a reasonable way of thinking about what the, what the mind does in that point of view. Like what is intelligence? Well, it might be your ability to like take a control system that's out of whack and put it back in whack. Um, so like, uh, so like intelligence is the ability to like acquire food when hungry. Um, it, it is the ability to like, when you are lonely to do something about that. Um, and like, would this kind of intelligence be correlated with what we now call intelligence? Like maybe somewhat. Um, but there are lots of people who supposedly score very highly on what we now think of as intelligence who don't seem to be good at this at all. Like they are often for, I mean, they're often very unhappy or they harm people or they ruin their lives. Um, which all of these things would be like major failures in, uh, in like a control systems view uh, of the mind. So, so I think rather than like taking that very seriously, uh, I hope that's at least an example of like how intelligence could mean something other than like what we mainly mean it to mean now, which now we talk about it as like problem solving, but the word problem does a lot of work there. It's like, well, the kind of problems that we all agree are problems. But the thing about that is like every person has an idiosyncratic view on what a problem is. And so we don't all have the same control system. We're not all trying to accomplish the same ends. This is also why like, I get annoyed when people are like, oh, humans, the most intelligent animal. It's like, well, the most intelligent at doing the things that we care about, uh, like not the most intelligent at like surviving underwater, uh, which like is very expensive and difficult for us. And so like intelligence here would also be much more idiosyncratically defined that it wouldn't be like playing chess. If you don't care about playing chess, it's not a reasonable measure of your intelligence. If you care a, a, a lot about like maintaining positive relationships with your family, like that is for you a measure of intelligence, uh, whereas other people might not care about that. That's total. That's not even half baked. That's like five percent baked, uh, maybe six yeah. percent baked. But uh, but like that that is how this could come to mean, to mean something different. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 really interesting. Maybe a science house problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You need four people living together for twenty years, and then we'll have it, have it figured out. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk quickly about the Milgram study. So this is really, really popular uh, study in psychology. And one interesting like outcome of it is it seems like to me, everyone I know has like a slightly different interpretation of it because it's so famous. Everyone's like, oh, have you heard of the Milgram study? Like, this is what it says about humanity. This is what it says about good and evil. Like, in your view, what what are the ways that someone can read a psychology study and take away the right, develop the right takeaway? Like, like how, how does one become like good at taking the right lessons from a study? It's a good question. I, I wish I had a good answer for it. I, I think what, like one useful rule of thumb is to understand that like a study like that is basically an allegory. Like these people did this thing at this time. And so all that it is useful for doing is showing that this thing is possible. Not even that it happens, not that it happens regularly, not that it will ever happen again. But like, if we trust the accounts of the author, which sometimes we shouldn't even, but, but setting aside the idea that like, we've just been lied to, all that we know is this thing happened. And so most of the time, it doesn't matter to say that this thing happened. Like, unless you had a strong expectation that this would happen never or always, learning that like it happens sometimes doesn't tell you that much. 
Um, and so I think Milgram, the Milgram studies are a unique example where like a pretty reasonable assumption was that this should happen never. Like it should not be possible to like bring people into the basement of a psychology laboratory or into like some office space and like a nondescript like office park and uh, and like tell somebody they should uh, what seems to them to be shocking someone to death and that they do it. That's why I think it's, it's a useful allegory, because uh, you think it shouldn't happen. And then it turns out it does. A lot of other things, it's like, well, this happens sometimes. Like, all right, well, did you think that it wouldn't? I mean, given all the degrees of freedom that a researcher has to like construct the experiment and the things that they and the people that they study and the things that they ask them to do, uh, and like to run a bunch of studies on this, like, do you think it's impossible that they could have ever done this? Most of the time, it's like, no, I thought it was totally possible, and so I'm not that interested to know when when it turns out that it was possible. Um, in this case, like, and now in retrospect, it seems much more possible because the Milgram studies have been so ingrained in culture. But before this, uh, and I mean, he did a good job in getting people to go on record and saying, like, I think only like 0.86% of people, like only diagnosable soci or psychopaths will go all the way to the end. And then showing like, no, actually, it happens like 60% of the time, at least in some versions of the study. That, that's one way uh, of, of like taking the, le the lesson away. But yeah, there's still like infinite room for, for like, well, what does this mean about human nature? Uh, but if we can just start from the idea that like this thing that we didn't think was going to happen happened, we're at least, I think, on on a right a writer track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. W what are your views on this? Really? It's really in vogue right now, right? It's called the replication crisis and say like, oh, no, like Daniel Kahneman, everyone knows who he is. Some of his stuff isn't replicating. Do you think this is overblown? How, how does it make you reinterpret the field? There's a quote from someone who, who shall remain nameless, but uh, but I agree with the reaction, which is like, I didn't care that it happened the first time. Why do I care if it happens again? Uh, yeah. Which is true for all the reasons that I just said about uh, about research that like, if I didn't think that it was impossible and you show me that it was possible, um, like maybe there's still, I guess, other ways that it could still be interesting. But this is also why, like Danny Kahneman in particular, like why why that rational actor theory was so useful that it gave us a background expectation that like people shouldn't do these weird like heuristics and biases things. And the fact that they do uh, more than zero makes it interesting. But now we've done that so many times that I don't think there's a good reason to expect that like on average, people are always going to obey the optimal rules of decision making. Maybe we've got the wrong rules of decision making. Maybe we don't understand the point of view of this person. Um, so yeah, my, my view on the replication crisis is like, yeah, people definitely shouldn't make up their data. They shouldn't p hack. They shouldn't, you know, use samples that are too small. And I think all those reforms are good that like showed how easy it is to get spurious results doing all the things that beforehand seemed normal. Um, but I think it's caused us to first ask of any research, like, is it true? When in fact, we should first ask, like, would it matter if it were true? And if the answer to that question is no, like no further questions necessary. Like it doesn't matter. Uh, so like, I don't care if it replicates, if, if I don't care about it in the first place. And I think people get really like tied up about the replication crisis because it's, it's, uh, very much about status that like, well, these people got status that they shouldn't have. And I also agree that it's bad, but, uh, I think the solution is to care a lot less about status. Um, and like uh, start a blog and go to a different thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what percentage of studies total that you think are run? Do you think are answering this? Like, do you think that you would be interested in whether or not the the outcome of the study like happens or not? Like, how many are good studies and how many are not? What percentage? On on the metric of would it matter if if it were true? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Uh, I like for me like five percent. Um, five percent. Uh, yes. In that, like, I I maintain or I still get emails from journals as like a new issue comes out, um, 
and I read through the the titles and like that's my best guess for the frequency with which I, I'm like oh I want to know more about that uh I mean the frequency with which yeah yeah it's probably about five percent that most of them are, are are just like yeah there's no world in which I think the study is going to provide me with like any information that I think is going <laughs> to change my view of the world at, at, at all I mean, it's harsh to say, but this is like true. I think this is Sturgeon's law, right? Like 95% of science fiction is crap because 95% of everything is crap. Um, yeah, yeah. The, like, the, this is also true about like stuff that's on Netflix. Like how much of it do I in particular want to watch? Like, I don't know. There's a lot of junk on there. Like it might be something like 5%. And when it's on Netflix, it's like, well, that's all fine. Uh, but people feel bad about this when it's scientific studies because they're like, well, the people worked really hard on them. And I'm like, yeah, I... And look, for other people, their 5% may be completely non-overlapping, or maybe it's 75% or whatever. But yeah, for, for me, it's not much. So what, what do you think could, could be the cause of this, right? If I think we have... So a lot of people cite like how many more people are working on science today. This goes back into like the ideas are getting harder to find. So there's so many more people like yes. working in science today, but the per researcher output is not that good. And it's for whatever reason we're like, yeah, we have, you know, 20 times as many researchers, but only 5% of them are put, like doing work that would actually matter. Do you have any just thoughts on this o overall? Is there something wrong here? Yeah. Like in terms of what causes it, I think um, in psychology, a big, a big problem is, is uh, a lack of a paradigm. So kind of anything goes, um, you can pick any noun and start running studies on it. Um, and like, as long as you cite the other studies that have also used that noun, you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're actually going to discover anything useful. Um, uh, that's in the background. And then, yeah, like you incentivize people to produce papers. Um, and, uh, and so you're going to get papers. And so even with people who are intrinsically motivated, they, they want to do good, interesting research. Well, but then it's like, well, but I, I do have to get a job. And so I do need to get some papers out. And then it's like, oh, I have a job. And, and they tell me like, I need this many papers in order to get tenure. And, uh, now it like, it gets really hard to continue to like care deeply about each paper. And so uh, I think I use this an anecdote a lot, but it stuck with me a lot was uh, being in a seminar with a, um, an, uh, an older professor. Uh, and, and she was like, you could delete half my CV and you wouldn't lose anything. Um, and I was like, how astounding <laughs> uh, and like, and how devastating, but like all that. And, you know, she explained like, you know, you got it. Your students need papers. Like your grants want outputs. Um, what, what are you going to do? Um, and my answer is like, well, <laughs> what are you going to do is like stick to your values even when they cost you something, I guess, is the answer to, to that question. That, that like, uh, for, for me, the, the trade-off of academia is supposed to be you work on problems you think are really interesting and you have a lot of freedom to do it. And in exchange for that, like you for a long time have a lot of job insecurity or like you could make more money going elsewhere or like you you get told where you're going to be and you, you know there's all this stupid politics but that that freedom to pursue uh questions the way you're supposed to that you want to pursue them like that's supposed to be the thing that you get if you don't get that it's not worth it like that you're trading off for nothing um so that that is a, i think a big part of where it comes from like you pay people for something they're going to do more of it um even even if they hate it uh, and especially you threat, you threaten to stop paying people if they, if they don't do something, they're going to do it. Um, and I think that's why we have a lot of papers that like, even the people who write them think they're junk. Final question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic on the future of science? Do you think in the next five years we'll be in a better place than we were today? I'm super optimistic. I don't know if, if, uh, if five years is enough, but I, but I think like, um, we're, we're at a moment where there is so much hunger to do things differently. Um, and, uh, and like so many people like experimenting with weird stuff, uh, and like doing things in different ways that 
I think certainly when you look back at this era of history in the future, I think that is going people are, are going to be like, oh, like cool stuff came from this point. Uh, and like there might be a little chapter in like the history of science books that, that was like the, you know, the uh, alternative institution like take on science and like look at some of the cool stuff that it did. Like there was this point in history where these institutions got so bloated and people thought they were, you know, sclerotic and, and deteriorating. And these people went off and did their own thing. Um I would be so thrilled if I got even got a footnote in there, but even if not, even if I like helped whatever person ended up being in there, like what a huge honor that would, that would be. And so I'm optimistic that in the long run, this would be cool in five years. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. But 500 years, we're going to nail it. All right. That is a fantastic place to end. Adam, thank you so <laughs> much for being gracious with your time. Um, experimentalhistory.com anywhere else that people should go to look for your work. Nope. It's all there. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Adam.